We are continuing our Words Matter series. Uh, If you've been here since the beginning of the year, you know we've just been digging into this series slowly but surely, Um, but we only have a few more weeks left. So we're coming to the end of this, and uh, once we're finished with this, we're going to get into a series on the book of Philippians. So we're going to just kind of dig in and study that together, which is going to be awesome. But we still have work to do here, and so we're looking forward to getting into today's message. And um, I'll just tell you from the beginning, today is a really, really big topic, all right? This is, this is a big one. Somebody's excited. This is a big topic, and honestly, one that I've uh, been on a journey with over the last several years Uh, Just really digging in, really studying this topic, seeing what scripture has to say about it. And the truth is, is I have been enjoying a new, fresh perspective of it. And so I've been eager to share that with you guys. In fact, when I uh, started building out this series, I knew that this is one of the words that we were going to get into. And so I've been anticipating that simultaneously, a little bit nervous about it because it is such a big topic. And and I think it is one that is going to be potentially a new, fresh perspective for some. So I want to set expectations right from the beginning here. Okay. I'm going to ask three things of you guys. All right. Three things. Number one, I'm going to ask for your focus. All right. Can I do that? I'm going to ask for your focus because uh, with how big this topic is, this is going to be a little bit longer of a message than I typically like to do. Okay. Not in a major way. I'm not going to have you all day here, but just a little bit longer than normal. Because I want to make sure we're not cutting any corners here, all right? I already feel like I'm jamming a ton into this little time slot, and so I don't want to cut too many corners, so I want to take my time. I want to make sure I'm clear in what I am communicating, and so I want your focus. I know that attention spans these days are not very good, myself included, but I I promise you, this will be worth your time. It'll be worth your attention. At the very least, you'll find it very intriguing and interesting, okay? So number one, your focus. Number two, I'm going to ask for openness, all right? I'm going to ask for some humility. I'm going to lay some things before you to be considered, to be contemplated, and I just want you to be open to that, okay? The truth is, is we try very hard around here to create an environment and a culture where we can talk about difficult topics, where we can have open conversations, where we can be transparent with one another, and the truth is, we can get down the road and say, you know what, I see that differently, doesn't change the fact that we're on mission together, we're united, right? We're still a family that's not going to change anything. And so today might be one of those topics where where maybe there are some new things presented for you to consider, but it's not going to change that we're family, right? We're going to keep moving forward together, but I think it's important that we understand the implications of these things, okay? The last thing, the easiest thing is I want you to download the sermon notes after the message, all right? So we'll have a QR code that pops up after the service on the screen, We also have some things out in the foyer. I want you to scan that and I want you to download the notes because, again, I don't have all the time in the world today to dig into every little thing and every little scripture. And so that will give you a little bit more information to look into, to study. I've included some some resources on there that I think might be helpful, a couple of books and a podcast that if you want to dig in further, and I encourage you to do that, maybe those will be helpful, okay? Focus, openness, sermon notes. Can we do that? Can we commit to that today. All right. Well, why don't we um, say a word of prayer before we begin to dig in and just make sure that, that God helps us to enter into it with humility, 
with openness and, and focus. And so please join with me. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Uh, we just adore you. We worship you. Uh, you are our God. We are your people. And uh, I pray today that your will would be done. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each one of us individually in only the way that you can. And I pray that you um, would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive this uh, on good soil, uh, things to be considered, things to be contemplated, and, and maybe potentially to have our perspectives change in a, in a positive, in a good way about who we are in relation to you. And ultimately, each one of us, we just submit to you this morning. We ask that you would speak, that you would move, and we respond humbly as your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen, amen. All right, everybody ready for the word? The word is heaven, heaven. All right, so maybe you begin to understand what I'm talking about with how big this word is and and how much we need to maybe understand what exactly is going on here. And so why don't we just simply start with this, all right? Let's start with maybe how we often think about this word or this concept today, all right? And if we're being honest with one another, like if we are having one-on-one conversations, the truth is, is when we think about heaven, we think about it in a very abstract type of way, right? Like it's really hard to get our, our minds around it. And if we were to try to explain it, we would probably say something like it's, you know, this ethereal place in the sky that we hope to go to someday, right? Some version of that, maybe we would use words like clouds and gates and angels. I don't know. Those are probably some of the images that would be conjured up in our minds. And in truth, as we continue down that road, what happens is that is then kind of caricatured through things like children's curriculum and even some of the modern day movies and TV shows that we watch today. Like if heaven is depicted, we get some version of that, right? It's bright lights, it's clouds, it's people floating around. And in fact, if I were to maybe catch somebody on the street and ask them what the Christian view of heaven is, I would get some version of that, okay? That's kind of how we think about this today, at least in some sort of way. But here is the question that I want to ask and at least try to answer a little bit, and that is, what does heaven actually mean within the biblical narrative, all right? What does it actually mean? What is it pointing us toward? How are we to respond to it? Because I think we need some clarity when it comes to these things. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover the story from beginning to end. All right. From start to finish, we're going to look at the narrative. And as heaven is included within it, what exactly it means and what we are to take from it. Okay. And the good news is we don't have to look very far before we see this come up within the narrative. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse within the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so right out of the gate, we see this word. We're left to do something with it and figure out what exactly is going on. And so let's call out a couple of important things right out of the gate, okay? The first thing is this. This verse is not saying that in the beginning, God created heaven, as in this place in the sky where he lives and where we hope to go when we die, all right? That's not what this verse just told us. The word heavens here simply means the sky, all right, the, the kind of great expanse that is above us as we look upward. That is what it is saying. We know this because we read the rest of Genesis 1. This is what it says in verse 8. God called the expanse heaven. 
Verse 17, speaking of the stars, God placed them in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. So heaven in the Hebrew language simply meant sky. Uh, or really better yet, the skies. Because in the Hebrew language, this was always used as a plural word. So really when we see this, we should think heavens or the heavens because that's what the original language is trying to bring about. Okay, so throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew understanding of heaven was almost entirely the skies, the great expanse that is above. In other words, and this is often how it's communicated, heaven is the sky above, earth is the land, below. Okay, the vast majority of the time, this is the context in which it is communicated and understood by the people. All right. Now, as the biblical narrative goes along and different writers began to express God in different ways, we do see the word beginning to evolve a little bit. Okay, we, we don't see it very often at all, but certain biblical writers do begin applying this word heaven to mean or represent the dwelling place of God, all right? We do begin to see this evolution. You might call it uh, God's space, which is often how I will refer to it today because I think that's somewhat helpful verbiage just to try to begin to understand. We're talking about where he fully exists, he fully resides, where he, he dwells, this is now called heaven. But here's the thing, the Hebrew people are using their word for the skies to represent this for a very specific reason. And it's not the reason that we often, without even realizing it, think of today. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but the Hebrew people did not often learn or were not often taught through things like logic and reason like we are today, okay? Rather, the ancient Eastern learning process was steeped in things like art, uh, things like poetry, things like imagery. Learning was a, a creative process for them. And so when the word heaven begins to be used in this type of context, they are using it metaphorically, all right? Now, as you can imagine, thousands of years ago, they had a very different understanding of the universe than we do today, all right? The truth is, is these days, we actually kind of know how a lot of this stuff works and how it operates and how it exists. And we sort of just assume they had the same understanding. They had the same awareness that we do today. But for them, they simply looked up into the sky and they saw this amazing, this overwhelming, this unknown aspect of God's creation. Like the skies were big and, and they're vast, they're powerful and they're mighty, right? Like this is where the lightning struck and, and where the thunder roared. This is where the rains poured out and the sun shined bright. In their construct of the world, the skies were this place of abundance and provision and exaltation. In other words, that's the highest place that you can even begin to imagine, and so when the biblical writers begin, even on a small scale, talking about God's dwelling space being in the skies, they're not so much speaking of it as a specific physical place, but rather a figurative place that represented his rule, his power, his authority, his provisions. It was entirely symbolic. So let me show you a few of the examples that we get and kind of how it was used in some of the poetic ways. Let's go to Psalm chapter 11. Verse four, it says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. I want you to put that word temple in your back pocket for just a second. 
The Lord is on his throne in heaven. He watches everyone on earth, his eyes study them. All right, now here's the truth of the matter, all right? If we're being honest about it, in our modern Western minds, without even realizing it, we very badly want to read that in a literal way, very badly. God is on a literal throne, residing in this place in the sky, watching over all of his creation. That's where our minds naturally want to take that. And if you don't believe me, think about this. When you're praying or when you're worshiping or when you're desiring to give God credit, think about where you look. Think about where you point. Think about where your attention is drawn. Typically, it's up to the sky. And then without even realizing it, this is how we then think about God. He's far off in the sky somewhere looking down on creation. And the truth is, while that might seem trivial to you, that can do some real damage to how we think about God if we don't understand the symbolism of what that represents. In fact, just think for a second I want you to seriously ponder the difference between believing in a guy who is far off in the sky looking down on us versus believing in a God who is at least in some way right here with us. Think about how that would impact your prayer life. Think about how that impacts your worship. Think about how that impacts your attention and focus every moment of every day of your life. This might seem like a small thing, but it's something we need to be aware of because the impact on our lives and our perspectives can be quite large, okay? Because here's the thing, on the flip side, when the Hebrew mind reads a psalm like this, they immediately understand that something far different is being communicated and frankly, something far more important. And that is that God is above everything, that God reigns above and beyond anything in creation. In other words, he's transcendent, he's superior, he stands above it all. That's what they are communicating. That's what the psalm is telling us. We see the same thing in Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, okay? So here's what we're beginning to see and pick up on through the narrative. When the biblical writers here wanted to talk about God as the king who reigns or as the one who rules above it all, they would often place him in the skies or in the heavens. Again, not so much pointing to a physical location, but a poetic image of power, authority, and praise, That's what is being communicated. In fact, here's another reason why we know that they're not talking about God literally residing in the skies because one of the biggest things, listen, that separated the Hebrews in their understanding of God and in their worship of God was that they believed that God was with them. Like they they believed in a God who was at least in some way amongst them. Think about how often we see this in the Old Testament narrative. Joshua says, be strong and courageous for God is with you. In Isaiah, God says, fear not for I am with you. In Zephaniah, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst. And so over and over again, we see that the Jewish understanding of Yahweh was not as a creator who spun all of these things into existence and then went off somewhere else, but rather a creator who very much intended to dwell within his creation. And so this is where our understanding of ancient Eastern temples becomes very essential. Remember, I told you to put that in your back pocket. Let's get into this for a moment. We're going to take a bit of a hard left turn, but I promise we'll make our way back. And so as you're reading through scripture, 
and especially the Old Testament, you'll often run into various topics or images that center around the Jewish temple, right? I mean, we can't really avoid it. We see it in some really obvious ways. Uh, We see it in a lot of symbolic ways that we don't even really pick up on. But the truth is, most of us these days, we will read these scriptures and we'll kind of quickly skim right past them because it's kind of an odd thing to us, right? Like, I mean, the temple sounds like an interesting piece of history. It's intriguing, seems like a cool place, but really, doesn't have any relevance for my life today. I would say generally that is our perspective when we think about it or read about it. And unfortunately, when we do that, we miss a huge piece, maybe the biggest piece of what the biblical narrative is all about. Because the biblical vision of the temple, listen, was an overlap or an intersection of heaven and earth. In other words, where God's space and human space overlaps, these two dimensions somehow colliding. This is what the temple was. This is how they saw it. This is how they understood it. In fact, we read about this really specific process that they would have to go through within the temple. And it included things like sacrifices and cleansing and anointing, some interesting things to to consider. But then on occasion, The high priest and only the high priest would enter into what was called the Holy of Holies. And this is where it was said that God's presence dwelt amongst his people. This is where he resided with them. Again, God's space somehow overlapped with human space in and through the temple. Now, you might be saying to yourself, okay, so how is that relevant for my life, right? What what am I supposed to take away from that? And here's why it's relevant. Because what's going on here is the temple was a pointer. It was an arrow that was pointing both to a desired past and a desired future of God's plan and purpose. Now, what do I mean when I say a desired past? Well, the temple was explicitly pointing God's people back to the origin story. In other words, back to the Garden of Eden picture and vision. In fact, if you'll notice sometimes, the the temple and the garden are oftentimes used interchangeably throughout Scripture because they both represent the same thing, which is a heaven and earth reality. That's what they represented. In fact, have you ever wondered as you're reading through the artwork of the tabernacle, why it's full of imagery like angels and gold and flowers and wood and fruit? Like, what are we talking about here? Well, that's because as the people enter into or gaze at the temple, they're immediately pointed back to the garden. In other words, the ultimate image of heaven and earth in harmony, where God's space and human space are fully together. And this is at least partly what the temple is pointing the people toward, what, what, what their attention is being drawn to. And so this is then what brings us into the New Testament storyline, okay? So, so now we turn the page from Malachi, we get into the book of Matthew. And I'll first off say this, okay? By the time the New Testament rolls around, this word heaven has definitely evolved a little bit, okay? We now see it uh, used far more often to represent God's space or his dwelling place or even his kingdom and his rule. We definitely see this more prevalently And this actually helps introduce us to the fact that a new story has begun, right? Which, of course, is centered around this man named Jesus. Now, we know who Jesus is today, or at least what was proclaimed about him. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God in the flesh. We know this. But remember, these accounts were once being written and read for the very first time. 
Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that, right? Like we've heard the stories over and over again. Everybody around us knows these stories. There was a time in history where this was brand new information for people. And so to the original readers, there are some specific things being communicated that we often overlook. And one of those is quite relevant for our discussion today, which is as each gospel account begins and ends, if you pay close enough attention, you will notice that the biblical writers are presenting Jesus and talking about Jesus through temple and garden language. Now, what do I mean by that? Why don't we walk through a few examples of what I mean when I say that. At the beginning of the book of John, as he opens up his gospel account, in verse 14, he says, Jesus came to earth and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. So explicit temple language that John is bringing about from the very beginning. At the end of the book of Matthew, as Jesus breathes his final breath, it says that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Explicit temple language with a lot of symbolism that we need to consider. At the end of John, This is an interesting one. As Mary sees the resurrected Jesus for the very first time, it says that she supposed him to be the gardener. So very interesting garden language in this account. We just continue to see this come up. When Jesus first enters into Jerusalem, where's the first place he goes? He goes to the temple. When he's in there, what does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days it will be raised up. In the book of Hebrews, it calls Jesus the great high priest. Again, explicit temple language. In fact, many of Jesus's future prophecies were about the eventual destruction of the temple that would later take place in 70 AD. So all throughout the New Testament, it's just littered with temple garden language as it relates to Jesus. Now, why, right? What what is going on here within the story? Well, the biblical writers are trying to communicate something very clear. And this would have been obvious, explicit, and scandalous to the Jewish readers. And that is what they're communicating is that Jesus, the Messiah, robes himself in flesh, comes to earth, and is now literally the walking, talking, breathing temple. In other words, don't miss this, the walking, talking, breathing intersection of heaven and earth. This is what they're trying to communicate about him. In fact, we read this scripture last week, but what does John the Baptist say as he prepares the way for Jesus? He says, repent and turn from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, heaven has now come to earth in a more real, a more living and a more active way in and through Jesus. And when you realize this, suddenly the gospel accounts kind of make all the more sense Because what we read about is Jesus going from place to place, going from town to town, just spreading heaven on earth. Everywhere that he goes, just spreading heaven on earth. And what does that look like? It looks like peace. It looks like truth. It looks like healing. It looks like restoration, right? And I'm talking about physically, mentally, spiritually. Here's a big one. It looks like raising people from the dead. We see him doing this on multiple occasions. Just everywhere he goes, every, everything that he does becomes this little pocket of heaven on earth. What was once represented by the temple has now come to life in the person and the work of Jesus. God is up to something new. But then here's the thing. Things get a little bit crazy. Things get a little bit more scandalous. Because the story begins to shift a bit as we get to the end of the gospel accounts. Because Jesus is doing all of these amazing things, right? I mean, he's healing and he's restoring and he's bringing forth truth. I mean, just spreading heaven on earth everywhere that he goes. 
But then he begins to say some interesting things, all right? All of a sudden, he begins to, to say things like, it's better that I leave you so that the Holy Spirit can come. Or later on, he says, even greater things than these will you do in my name. Now, of course, just as you or I would do, if we're being honest, the disciples are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, like, don't you see the things you're doing? Don't you know who you are? You're literally the intersection of heaven and earth. No way you're leaving us. No way you're going anywhere that is not gonna happen. And yet, of course, that's exactly what happens. As we read on, Jesus dies on the cross. He is raised from the grave. We turn into Acts chapter one, where he finally leaves them just as he said he would. But then we turn the page to Acts chapter 2, and we see something amazing happen, right? Which is the Holy Spirit, just as it was promised from Jesus, is poured upon his people for the very first time. And we see these amazing miracles and these signs and and these wonders. We see this community of of people come together and begin to do incredible things. I mean, go read the story. It's just amazing. It's almost hard to fathom that this is the stuff that was happening. But here's the thing, oftentimes when we read this, we look right beyond the significance of what's truly going on. Because what the story is ultimately showing us is that Jesus has effectively ushered in a new heaven on earth reality where no longer is he simply the walking, talking, breathing temple, but now suddenly all those who put their faith in him become the same thing, become the intersection of heaven and earth. Watch as the New Testament talks about this later on. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You are that temple. He continues on a few chapters later, chapter six, verse 19. He says, do you not know? that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God, and that you are not your own? Like, what is Paul saying here? This is unbelievable. Peter later on gets in on the action. Second Peter 2, 5, he says, you too are like living stones being built up into a spiritual temple and a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ something very important is happening within the narrative. And I wish we had time today to kind of sink into this a little bit and and talk about the magnitude of this. But here's what I would say. I would encourage you this week to just go do some studies around the significance, around the power, around the sacredness of the temple to the Jewish people. Seriously, go, go look at the way that they talked about the temple, the way that they looked at the temple, the way they treated the temple. It was the very epicenter of their belief system. And listen, all of that symbolism, all of that power, all of that significance is now supplied to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's one of the most amazing, one of the most shocking things that scripture reveals about what God is up to, a heaven on earth reality in and through his people. Yet again, God is up to something new. Many scholars now call this new reality the now but not yet kingdom of heaven. Let me explain that a little bit. What that means is that Jesus began through his life, death, and resurrection, a new heaven on earth reality. This this ever-expanding, ever-growing reality of peace and restoration and wholeness and renewal and love. He began this work, and yet we are still awaiting the fullness of the kingdom to come. 
We are still awaiting the full heaven and earth reality that he speaks of, which begs the question, what is that full reality? What, what does the fullness of the kingdom look like? Remember, I told you the temple was simultaneously pointing to a desired past and a desired future. And so what is that future? And so why don't we take a look at this ourselves and see what we can pull from this. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. This is a prophetic vision of the things to come. It's apocalyptic language. So it's a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, just like we said. This is very much how the Hebrew people learned and understood things. But this is where we start. It says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Let's press the pause button for just a moment and just make sure we understand what is being communicated here because it does get a little bit tricky, okay? So first off, the word new, as in new heavens, new earth, new sky, new land, can also be translated renewed. Uh, other times it was translated renovated. So just to be clear here, this is not talking about some other creation. It's talking about renewal. It's talking about restoration. That's what's happening. We see the same exact thing through the phrase passed away. Okay, This is the same thing that we see in 2 Corinthians 5 when it says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has passed away, and the new has come. In other words, what this vision is all about is healing, renewal, and restoration. That's what we are seeing. Another reason we know this is because we read the rest of the prophecy, all right? So let's pick back up in verse two. You're gonna notice some familiar language that we need to tap into, okay? This is what we read. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Again, renewal. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and they are true. So what is this vision showing us? Let's talk about this for a second. What are we to take from this? Well, this is clearly giving us a picture of peace, of, of restoration, of renewal, of wholeness, like in ways that we can't even begin to understand, right? This is clearly what it's showing us. Here is the key. It is not showing us this in some different dimension. It's not showing us this in some place built in the sky. It's showing it here in this creation as he fully brings heaven and earth together, just as he intended from the beginning. That's what the vision is showing us. I wholeheartedly believe that this is what God is up to, that this is his plan and purpose as revealed from beginning to end of scripture. And unfortunately, again, we don't have time to dig into this completely, and maybe we'll do a future series on it. But this lays forth a whole different set of implications for who we are and for what God desires to do through us. A heaven on earth reality that we can be a part of. A heaven on earth reality that we are in fact invited into. You know, like when he calls us his workmanship, this is what it's pointing us towards, bringing heaven to earth just as Jesus did. We call ourselves Jesus followers. Why are we not doing the same things that he did? And in fact, isn't this how Jesus himself told us to pray? 
Isn't this what he told us to ask for? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is who we are. This is what we ought to be about as his people. And this is the pinnacle of the biblical story. This is it right here. In fact, Tim Mackey, a biblical scholar, said it this way. The union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. What was once fully united but driven apart, God desires to restore and bring back together as he always intended. This is the the biblical story, and this is what we're invited into as his people. Now, maybe let's take a deep breath. All right, we've covered a lot of information. Let's take a few steps back, and let's maybe ask ourselves this question. What are we to take from that? Like, if we just get down to the nuts and bolts of it, like, what, what are the primary takeaways if we are to believe and understand this? So there are two things that I think are very, very important for our understanding and our perspectives. And the first thing is this, and there's some new, new perspective here that maybe we need to consider. When scripture speaks of heaven, the first thing we need to realize is that it's almost entirely speaking, not of some future plan that God is up to or a place that we hope to be someday, but instead what God is up to here and now within his creation. That is what the biblical narrative shows us, which means, and again, this is new perspective. The purpose of life is not to escape and go to heaven when we die. The purpose of life is to bring heaven to earth more and more fully through the indwelling of the spirit and the power and authority of Christ. That is our purpose. And again, that is the biblical narrative from front to back bringing heaven to earth. That's it. That's the Genesis 1 narrative. That's the temple narrative. That's the Jesus narrative. That's the church narrative. That's the revelation narrative. Not earth to heaven escape, heaven to earth fulfillment. That's what it's about. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about the impact of this. What if instead of talking about going to heaven in the future, we talked about how to seriously bring heaven to earth right now? What if that was our focus? What if instead of understanding scripture to be some roadmap to heaven, we understood it to be a roadmap on how to bring heaven to earth more and more fully? In fact, what if we realized we were equipped for that? What if we realized we were empowered for that? Like, make no mistake about it. This is the biblical call, the true Christian purpose, expressions of heaven on earth in and through the spirit. This is who we are and what we're invited into. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and and this is really, really important to consider. When scripture speaks of heaven, it is shining a bright, bright light on the character, the nature, and the desire of God, which is to say, we serve a God of renewal, restoration, hope, wholeness. Like that's the God that we serve. We cannot look past this. Many people these days are, are really confused about who God is, really struggling with who God is and, and what the biblical narrative shows about him. But ultimately, this is what it shows us about him, that he is a good creator, a good God who is out to make all things new, to reconcile all things unto himself in the most amazing, glorifying way possible. That's who he is. That's what he is up to. And here's the thing, that should shape everything for us. That should shape everything, how we understand God, how we understand scripture, that should shape us. Even the death and the resurrection of Christ should be shaped by this perspective, should be seen through this lens, which is to say, 
The truth is, most of us simply think about those things through a very moralistic lens, right? His death, his resurrection, it atones for, it it washes away my sins. And yes, that is a glorious truth that we ought to celebrate and be very, very thankful for. But more importantly, it's the ultimate example and signpost of what God is up to through his whole creation, which is complete renewal, complete restoration, and Christ initiated that. See, this is why he's called in Colossians 1, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, Jesus started this, the Spirit has continued it in and through us, and one day he will totally accomplish it. A full heaven and earth reality, just as it was in the beginning, so shall it be in the end. This should be our takeaway. This should be what shapes and forms our understanding of who God is, of who we are in response to that. And it's something to consider, something to contemplate. Now, that does leave one giant hole that we haven't yet covered. And that is, if we're in the now but not yet kingdom of heaven, if that's true, meaning he hasn't made all things new yet, uh, meaning that the, the new heavens and the new earth haven't come yet, what does that mean for those of us in Christ after death? Meaning after death and before new creation, before the new heavens and the new earth, in that in-between time, so to speak, what does that mean for us? And so many scholars will tell you that there are five scriptures in the New Testament that give us some sort of indication on what to expect here, okay? And so let's walk through these real quick because you're gonna very quickly see that there's a primary theme, a primary hope that we are very much to cling to. So we're just gonna walk through these one by one. It's gonna go very quick, okay? Starting in Luke 21, verse 43, Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross next to him. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's clue number one. John 14, verse three, Jesus talking to his disciples, he's trying to comfort them. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Clue number two. Philippians one, starting in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Clue number three, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul again says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And the fifth and final one, this is a vision of those currently in this state and it places them with the Lord and it says this, and there was given to each of them a white robe. First lady talked a little bit about that last week, but it continues on. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Okay, so these are the five scriptures that show us a little bit about what this means and what we can expect. And so maybe let's try to sum this up and see what we can take from it. What that means is that there is a state after death for those in Christ, which is described as paradise. Sounds great. It's described as a state of rest, which is an interesting inclusion, but far and away, what is most important, far and away, what is the epicenter, what is the climax is that it's a place where we will finally be with Jesus. Every single scripture that we just read shines a bright light on this. We will finally be with him. And as Paul says, and I agree, that's where I desire to be. That's where I wanna be with my Lord. And this is what we can expect. But here's the thing. And here's where we'll wrap things up today. As the biblical writers speak of this in these five scriptures, there's clearly a sense of, of hope that they're trying to bring about. 
There's clearly a sense of, of comfort that they're trying to lay before us. There's clearly a sense of excitement even on what we can expect. But listen, there's also clearly a sense that this is not the end of the story. That this is not the bigger narrative or even the point of what God is up to because the truth is it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is that there's a disconnect between heaven and earth, between God's space and our space. And his ultimate hope and his ultimate promise is to reunite the two. That's it. That's the picture of restoration, of wholeness, of peace, of justice that we've been talking about through this series. And this is the ultimate culmination of those things. Like, listen, God is a good creator. God is a good creator. That's what the beginning of the whole story tells us. He's a good creator. And therefore his purpose is not to destroy his creation and to whisk us off into something entirely different. No, he's a healer. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. And so in the coming together of heaven and earth, that final plan and purpose is accomplished. His good creation fully restored. His good creation fully made new. And we get to be a part of that narrative. We, we get to enter into that story. And listen, this is what heaven should point our attention to. This is what it should mean to us, an invitation into the renewal story that Christ has began and indeed will complete. This is what it should mean to us. And this is the good and proper response.